It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, along with Alex Brooklyn in Manhattan. Hello. Hey. Christina Greer is off doing uh, auntie things and uh, enjoying some family time. She'll be back with us next week when we'll be talking with controller and mayoral candidate Scott Stringer. This week, we're going to be talking about police unions and the, uh, the spoils, uh, the salaries, uh, the jobs they're involved with, and the effect all that has on public safety. But before we get to that, Alex, fill us in on what's been happening around New York. Well... A bunch of stuff in our new normal. New York and New Jersey, unfortunately, are back on top of the coronavirus charts as cases are surging in both states. Uh, the CDC extended the eviction moratorium to June 30th. Um, again, that's a little more complicated. So for any specific situation, just like look into the local laws and nonprofits that are trying to help people with a bit of rent relief and navigate some of these uh, troubling evictions. Governor Cuomo announced that everyone over 30 years old is eligible for the vaccine starting Tuesday, March 30th. And above the age of 16, everyone's eligible next Tuesday, April 6th. So that's pretty exciting. Um, the Department of Health accidentally booked over 40,000 appointments in the Bronx's brand new vaccination site, Co-op City. Um, and the news was broke by Justin Miller on Twitter while he was on a like seemingly mile long line in Co-op City to get a vaccine. So as everybody like rushed these sites, I guess 40,000 of them got booked in the Bronx. So the big news this week is that Cuomo signed a bill legalizing marijuana, effective today as we record on Wednesday, um, prioritized licenses for communities hurt worse by the war on drugs, home grow is legal up to a certain amount, um, some other good news about it, like expunging past marijuana convictions, launching a new social equity initiative. Reported by Democrat and Chronicle, I read, quote, once fully operational, the cannabis industry is expected to generate more than $350 million in tax revenues per year for the state, 40% going to social equity fund, 40% for schools, and 20% for drug treatment and education. So that's, uh, that's the news today. Thanks, Alex. So we've got two guests today, both of whom had really significant detailed articles this week about police unions you should read. Uh, if you'd like, along with my uh, column in the uh, Daily News about the point where money and justice diverge. Right now, we're going to be talking with Farris Stockman of the New York Times editorial board, who wrote about Suffolk. And after that, we're going to be talking with Jake Pearson of ProPublica about the police union contract in New York City that puts taxpayers on the hook to defend officers even when the city says it won't. Let's jump right in. Hey, Farah. Thanks for uh, coming on and joining us here. This was a big week for stories about police unions, and there was a pretty incredible one in the New York Times that wrapped a whole bunch together, even more if for some crazy reason you haven't been following Suffolk County and didn't know about the uh, the mess that the uh, police chief, former, and his good friend, uh, the DA, former, are now in. Uh, Farrah Stockman connected a lot of these dots and uh, those in turn to the, uh, the power of the police union in Suffolk for the Times this week. It's a pretty incredible read. And she's joining us now to discuss this, uh, the county where cops call the shots. And I think there's a lot of counties where people feel that way to some extent or, or another. But I'm hoping you can explain a little about what's going on in Suffolk and what drew you to, uh, to do this deep reporting on the county. Um, well, thanks for having me. Uh, yes, I've been getting a lot of emails this week from people who are saying, we've known this for years. And uh, Suffolk County appears to be like an egregious example of what is happening everywhere um, or many places across the country. And um, it just 
it's a place where police earn a stunning amount of money. So I found that half of the force, more than 1,200 officers, earn more than $200,000 a year or took home more than $200,000 in 2019 including overtime. And one had, you know, when you retire, you get to, I think you get to bank 300 vacation and sick days. And so they're like, you know, some of them walk away with like $600,000. It's, it's a, it's lots and lots of money. It's also a place where the police union is incredibly politically active. They have not only a PAC, but a super PAC where they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on local races. And so, you know, it's almost like the the giving of the money marks you, you know, like it, it, it sends a message to the other legislators, like stay away from this guy or stay away from this, this bill uh, you know, when they come after a, a person, it's it's not that they're they always win, but it it is a big fight. Um, it's a big fight if you don't have their endorsement. And then the last thing you would think, with all that money going around, that they would be like world class, right? But <laughs> but then you get into it, and you're like, oh my god, the 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 crimes that they have committed, and it's it's the police. Now you're talking about. Yes. And so there was this big scandal a few years back in Suffolk County where the chief of police, a guy named James Burke, was arrested by the FBI. And it started off as like, okay, the police chief beat up a guy who had stolen a duffel bag of sex toys out of his SUV. And he just came after this guy in the police station, had him like, you know, handcuffed for hours and then came in and just, you know, threatened to kill him, threatened to go after his family and all this stuff. But it was, of course, the cover up was revealed how that police department really worked because everybody was afraid to talk. Everybody who saw it was afraid to talk in his trial and the the trial of the district attorney. There were police officers talking about how they had to move their family to a hotel because they were feared for their safety. You know, uh, guys, one guy checked himself into a mental hospital. I mean, the pressure of being forced to lie for this police chief and lie to protect him was and he, you so much came out in the trial. It's much bigger than just he beat up a, a guy. He you know, you got to see how he operated and you got to see that um, it was essentially a mafia kind of enterprise where he. He and the district attorney, who had known each other since he was like a teenager, they essentially uh, used the law enforcement in Suffolk County as uh, to carry out political vendettas. They would use wiretaps, things learned in wiretaps against politicians to extort and blackmail them. They would send cops to people's retirement party to look at who was there spying on people. I mean, it was it, it was extensive. And so, you know, you're like, if they're doing this to cops, what are they doing to ordinary black and brown and poor people? Speaking speaking of those people for a moment, and not to drag us into the weeds, but there's a whole series of connections involving Burke, this police chief who, uh, who roughed up this teenager, found his sex toys in the car, um, and a, a unsolved series of murders in Gilgo Beach. Yes. Yes. Of sex workers. Yeah. So the Unraveled podcast, if people get really deep into Suffolk County, you know, the muck of political corruption scandals in Suffolk County, what well, you may stumble across a seven part true crime series of called Unraveled. We had to take out uh, uh, the stuff that I mentioned about it. But there's, you know, there's a lot of allegations that Burke and many other powerful people in Suffolk County used to frequent sex parties in a town called Oak Beach, and that that is where a lot of prostitutes were found murdered. And um, basically one one sex worker ran screaming from one of these Oak Beach parties, called 911, was on the phone for 20 minutes, and then she still disappeared. She knocked on the doors of neighbors' houses. It, it was a very crazy story. And then the search for her body uncovered, like, I believe, 10 other bodies, 10 or 11 other bodies and body parts. And then um, 
six of them were sex workers. And so, you know, this is an unsolved crime, but this unraveled podcast talked about Burke kind of, he wanted to keep the FBI at bay. He wanted to keep the feds out of his backyard. So he, when he became police chief, he kind of cut off the, the help they were giving to the Long Island serial killer investigation. And some people think, well, hey, maybe... Maybe he did it because he didn't want them sniffing around his backyard. And maybe he did it because he knows who the killer is and wants to protect them. There's just endless, endless uh, allegations and rumors flying. And, and this takes us, in a sense, to Rob Trotta, who's a lawmaker out there and a former police officer who's gotten deeply concerned and invested in the question. And this is a guy who's walked the walk in this question of how much money goes around and how much influence that buys and some of the criminality from the police that maybe that allows for. Yeah, I think there's probably not enough said about how good police officers, how angry they are about the kind of cronyism and corruption that has overtaken so many police departments with the help of the police union. And I think, you know, Rob Trotta is this crazy character who, you know, um, some people who meet him think of him as McNulty in The Wire, just sort of like a quirky but obsessive guy who really, um, he was, he was kind of seconded to the FBI for 10 years. And so he didn't actually, you know, he, he wasn't as steeped in the department as other people. But when, when, when James Burke pulled him off an FBI task force, then he started getting really angry. He was outraged, basically. And he ended up really going after Burke and developing a personal hatred for Burke. And so he actually says that he decided to run for county government and leave the police department because he thought if he stayed in the police department, Burke would target him and set him up for a crime. And you, you might think, oh, you're just being dramatic. But I've heard that from other officers you know, that they were all afraid that, you know, Burke would frame them. And so, you know, think about that. This is an admission from police officers that the head of, that the chief of police was going to frame you for a crime. It's a stunning admission that police departments could simply just be like another gang. Like, like that's, you know, that's exactly what it was. So a lot of police officers didn't like Burke. They actually wrote a letter to the county executive who'd just gotten elected and said, guess what? This guy frequents prostitutes. He's been caught in his uh, patrol car having, uh, while on duty having sex with a prostitute. He lost his gun. You know, they knew that he, he uses information gleaned through police investigations to, against politicians. They ran down the whole thing. But it was an anonymous letter, and Burke got appointed police chief anyway. And Steve Ballone says all this came as a uh, surprise to him when when when, when Burke was uh, when Burke was arrested and so forth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the county executive. I know that I know that Burke is a char- was a charming guy, and a lot of people were were charmed by him. He he a lot of a lot of uh, politicians told me that you know look he Burke knew how to talk to us, and he he was very charming, but. You know, imagine how charming you are when you also come with an $800,000 check from the police union. He was the police union's guy and the police union and the DA's guy. And the DA was very powerful. So, you know, when a DA and a, and a police chief get together, there's nothing they can't do, right? I'll arrest you for the crime. I'll prosecute you for the crime. In fact, Steve Ballone's path to political power in Suffolk County was paved by the D, this corrupt DA who had uh, threatened the previous county executive with prosecution. And so when the previous executive stepped aside, you know, Steve Ballone is now able to run for office. He runs with the police union's backing. He gets in there and the police union wants Burke, the DA wants Burke. And he, you know, Steve Ballone in the beginning was not about to rock the boat. And so, you know, he went, he went along with it until they started targeting him. They thought, you know, they, they started coming after his people. They started, you know, and you can tell they were, they were about to turn on him. So he, he, he fought them and, and they ended up in prison. So I was talking with uh, Michael Daly 
earlier today who has been covering police in and around New York since literally before I was born and asking him how he felt the, the union part fit into this. And he was taking me through some of the older Suffolk history when I think the pay was lower and the union was less powerful. Look, Nassau too, which has not had nearly the same sort of massive corruption, the average salary is six figures or the average pay once you work in overtime, rather, is six figures. You know, they're very well compensated yeah. there. He was telling me the homicide squad had uh, would get the vacant house listings from realtors and take people to those houses and uh, beat them until they confess to various things and then find them thereafter. Um, all sorts of charming stories like that. Oh, sure. And so to what extent do you see this as a, uh, as, as, as a culture? And to what extent do you see money – creating or allowing for or maintaining that culture? You know, it's it's tough because Rob Trotta blames the money. He says it's all about the money and the money controls the politicians. And um, if we could just get rid of the money, then, um, you know, the power will drain out of them. I think that's not entirely true. I think in certain ways, because they had to have some power to change the, the state law in, in 1983 to allow them to donate to politicians. Prior to 1983, it was illegal for police officers and their associations to donate to politicians. So all the things that they got for themselves in the 70s, they had a lot of favorable laws, including one that is this binding mandatory binding arbitration. And that's the thing that I think drives county executives crazy. Basically, police unions used to be rare, weak, and not having legal status, right? Back back in the battle days when, when there were no labor rights in the United States. And then in the 50s and 60s, police departments managed to convince a lot of Americans, many suburban white Americans, right, and Long Island is the original suburb, that their safety depended on on strong police unions, saying if without a strong police union, the police would never have the resources, they would never have the legal protections they need to keep the society safe. And so fast forward to, to the late 60s and the early 70s, New York state is roiled with public sector strikes, the transit workers, teachers, there were all these strikes. And at the time, basically, politicians had lawmakers had tried pretty draconian ways to break those strikes, and that those ways didn't work. So people decided, let's call a truce. We will make it illegal to strike if you're a public sector union, but we're going to treat you right. And we're going to give you um, access to labor-friendly board that's going to resolve disputes. And that that's the Taylor Law. But in 1974, police and firefighters got something even additional to that, um, which is mandatory binding arbitration on contracts. Uh, basically, all police unions had to do after that was say, oh, we're, we've reached an impasse. All they have to do is sort of dig in their heels and say, we've reached an impasse, and then we're going to go to a, a labor arbitrator. And this is an elected person who is handpicked by the unions. And, you know, if they, if they have some anti-union decisions, nobody's going to pick them again. That person is going to decide what police earn in your county. And the only thing they're going to really take into account is what police earn in the next county over. And so Suffolk and Nassau can just keep saying, oh, they earn more. Oh, no, they earn more. No, they earn more. And this is sort of like a, you know, this is a little routine that they can do for decades until you've got half the force earning $200,000. So thank you again for taking the time and going through this. Um, I hope people go, if they haven't already, and read the full article, The County Where Cops Call the Shots. I want to bring this back to New York City for just a second as a parochial New York City person uh, on a podcast with New York City in its name. There's a couple things here. There's a lot of uh, New York City police officers who live in Suffolk County and are around and aware of some of this. And when you talk to NYPD officers, and I wrote something this week for the Daily News that upset the PBA, so I heard a lot about this, and you say you guys have, have a good deal. 
in any sense. They say, absolutely not. And then they say, look at the Port Authority, look at Westchester, look at Nassau, look at Suffolk. You know, everyone around us is, is making more money. Speaking of that ping-ponging back and forth, and that becomes the sort of pressure they can provide. So I, I just love your thoughts on all this and, and how the region connects when it comes to policing and unions and all of that. Look, I think when auto workers go on strike, right, we don't have any cars. When police officers go on strike, they can they can foment a kind of uh, of uh, I mean it's just it's ugly, right? They have a lot of power, and I think what what has to happen the the all the conversation about public service and heroism gets thrown out the window, and that's why I like this comparison with the military. Look at soldiers. Look at what we expect of soldiers, men and women in the U.S. military. Look what they get paid, right? Uh, why are police officers different? Um, and so there was what I learned doing this piece is that there was this moment when there was a, an attempt to to unionize the U.S. military. And in fact, there are several NATO militaries that have unions in them that were so, soldiers are unionized in Europe. And so there was this push and it, it really freaked people out in the Pentagon and it freaked out people in Congress, members of Congress who had been former mayors who knew what it was like to ha- to deal with a unionized police department were like, no, we're not doing that in the military. And they quickly outlawed it. But there was a moment at which this was under discussion. And if you look at all the reasons why the mili- why it would be a really bad idea to unionize the military, right? You're going to war and the military can be like, nope, uh, sorry, we need more pay. Nope, sorry. You know, like that's how, you know, that's how your, your country gets defeated right there, <laughs> you know? And so the main argument that won the day against the unionization of soldiers was that it would create another chain of command. It's not only your, you know, the, the military chain of command, but there'll be the union that can then tell soldiers what to do. True enough, right? That is exactly the case we have with with police. So no police commissioner in this country is really in charge as long as there's a union leader who can really tell the members what to do and protect the members who violate the police commissioner's policies. If I talked a lot to the police commissioner out in Minneapolis after George Floyd, she's like, we adopted all these policies to try to try to hold police accountable to higher standards. But every time we got someone fired, the union would protect them, fight for their job, take them to a, a labor arbitrator who would then reinstate. There are cops who have like done crazy things driven a getaway car uh, in a crime, done all murdered people, all kinds of stuff, and they get protected by the union. And so whatever the police commissioners try to do with the elected officials that you and me and other voters put in office, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all, as long as an unelected arbitrator can really decide their fate. And so anyway, the union is really wrapped up in this. And I noticed that just just um, an earlier point I didn't make back in Suffolk County, who went to jail? James Burke, the police chief, went to jail. Uh, Spoda, the D.A., the dirty D.A. went to jail. Right. Lots of cops lost their job for the cover up of Burke. Guess who didn't lose their job? The union guys who literally coached the police officers to lie to protect the police chief. So I think if if police unions want to continue to be respected, they have to show that they are driven by public service, that they care about the community, not just themselves, right? And that they are uh, mission-driven, that they're going to solve crimes, not commit them. And like, if as long as, if you if, if you have... A union that's devoted to, uh, and it's the same thing if you look at, you know, back to the auto workers. There's a way that you can get too powerful. You can get too much. And then people are like, oh, well, by the way, these factories are moving overseas because you cost too much. And so what really got me interested, so interested in this story is that here you have Rob Trotta, a former cop and a fiscal conservative 
who, and, you know, Suffolk County is full of fiscal conservatives, people who believe uh, in lower, lowering taxes. Taxes are really high in Suffolk County. It's really hard to afford to live there. And they have a very um, overlapping interest now with liberals, liberal activists who want to curb the power of the police union because they want uh, police to stop abusing black and brown people. So it seemed to me like, wow, both sides of the political spectrum have an interest here. But, you know, the, it's a really up, uphill battle. There's a lot more we could, we could dig into, including the, uh, the weak tea uh, reform plan that Suffolk just offered after Andrew Cuomo, in a sort of ridiculous way, demanded every county come up with a reform plan. That that I think was close to the least they could do. So I, I love your thoughts on that. But then I, I promise, so I know you've got to get out. We will let you go. I actually think Suffolk. I think that the reform plan stuff in some communities, people are really getting involved. Right. This is what how democracy looks. And so when you Suffolk County has um, a group of activists that are meeting. They put out something called the People's Plan, which said what they wanted police to look like. And, you know, some I do think Suffolk County has taken some of those things like the 911 um, call diversion. So maybe if you have a 911 call and it has to do with mental health, you're not going to get a bunch of armed police officers at your door ready to shoot someone. And so, like, those are things that I do think, you know, I think Suffolk County has gone further than other places. And we just don't. But they did have a police union member sitting on the task force. And so. You know, for them, they're like, well, that means maybe there's a better chance that this will actually happen. But, you know, look, in a democracy, this is how a democracy is supposed to work. Communities are supposed to get together and imagine how do we want to be? What should our police, what should public safety look like? And, and who, who should be in charge of keeping us safe? And, you know, we've gone far away from that in our political system. And so I do think that the, at least in Suffolk County, there is cause for some hope that um, this idea of reimagining police can happen. But it's not going to happen as, as if, unless people start taking the police union down a notch or two and saying, you work for us, right? We pay your salaries because we're taxpayers. You report to us. I mean, everything in Suffolk County is about getting a government job that pays far too much for doing far too little. That We can't afford that. I don't care if you're a liberal or a conservative. We can't afford that. Thank you again. Uh, and I hope, uh, I hope we'll talk again and uh, we'll see where all this goes in Suffolk and everywhere else. Thanks. Good luck. Good luck. It's it's a cool coincidence that everybody wrote about it this week. I'm sure they thought it was a conspiracy against them. <laughs> so we got all the way east, all the way out to Suffolk, and now let's bring it back home to New York City. And joining us right now is Jake Pearson of ProPublica. Jake, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So this story that you reported out, I, I think from, from how it's described in the story, largely from uh, documents, right? I, I don't think the headline quite does it justice. A police union contract puts taxpayers on the hook to defend officers when the uh, city won't. And so there's a lot to think about there, starting with, with oh, sometimes the city doesn't defend officers and ah, who's paying then and so on. But I'm hoping you can just explain to our, our, our listeners what this deal is, why it's newsworthy, and why this news is getting reported in the year of 2021. Sure. Well, th uh, that's all fair game. So, so, so you're right. You know, the this story originates with my interest in an examination of all public records, but the focus was uh, on the labor deal that the police officers and their very powerful union struck with the city and what it allows for and what it doesn't allow for in the context of police reform. Uh, clearly, since George Floyd, there's sort of been something of a reckoning. This this happens in America from time to time, but there was something rather extraordinary about George Floyd in that video and what it spawned as far as protests and a reform narrative and conversation. So in that frame of reference and with that in mind, I wanted to take a real examination of what the document showed and what they say 
And sort of buried in this labor agreement, I noticed there is reference to a $75 per officer contribution uh, by the city to a fund for cops for legal defense. Uh, and that sort of just made me curious to learn more. And I started digging through the tax filings that the union files because it is a, it's a nonprofit. It's uh, files under the 990 of the IRS code. And sure enough, there is a legal defense fund of the Police Benevolent Association. It takes in just under two million a year, 1.7 directly from the city and another 3.7 comes from a, an affiliate fund, another fund that the union controls. So I put in some records requests with the mayor's office of labor relations to try and basically pin down when and how this thing was formed and originated and what was stipulated to at the time and so on and so forth. And so that's the long winded answer to your question. That's sort of the, the mechanics of it all. But a 2021 story is coming from, you know, a 1985 agreement. Is the affiliate fund still from the city or somewhere else? Yeah, so the the affiliate fund is a health and welfare benefit fund. So this is not an uncommon thing for unions to have. In New York's case, it is 20 some odd million dollars that it's entirely funded by the city. And it goes for health benefits, for education, for all kinds of things. One of the benefits, it turns out, is this contribution for legal defense. So it turns out in New York that this legal defense fund that is set up to capture this direct city contribution and the transfer from the health and welfare fund is entirely city funded. It's all coming from the treasury. You know, one is direct, one is through this other fund. And this is what is used by the union to pay for the defense of its officers when they get into trouble, all kinds of trouble. In civil litigation, in criminal litigation, there is some portion of it that can be used for what are referred to as prepaid legal services. So, uh, divorces, house closings, that sort of thing. You know, there is work, there's legal work that is paid for it. It is a benefit uh, in the way that health, I don't mean like, <laughs> that's not a pejorative. It is a benefit that comes with the job uh, as negotiated by the union with the city. And this benefit, there, there's a handful of circumstances, right, in which city lawyers won't defend a police officer. I, I see in your story that it was 48 officers out of 562 cases in 2019. And I think there's a couple circumstances in which that can happen. There's a, a sort of egregious wrongdoing of one sort or another in uniform under color of authority. And then I'm sure that there's all sorts of uh, domestic and personal disputes that may also fall under that. Stop me if I'm wrong. But you're now talking about cases in which the city is not paying for the defense of police officers, except that this fund that the PBA is paying for with money from the city means the city is in practice paying that defense, even when they say that this is not conduct we're willing to defend, right? That, that's yeah, sort of what no, blows that, my mind. About no, that's, you're, you're totally right. So so the city almost always defends officers for their on-the-job conduct. It's just what happens. It's almost always. You you cited the numbers that are in the story. Uh, it's true. Uh, in these rare set of cases, when the city walks away, and we can talk through that process, when they basically cut the cop loose, taxpayer money is still funding the cop's defense. It's just a fact. It's something that was negotiated in 1985 that has remained in the contract ever since. In fact, after the police officers negotiated for it, subsequent contracts by sergeants, captains got it. Lieutenants also have it. The correction officers union got it for their members. The union representing jail wardens and deputy wardens and assistant deputy wardens, they got it too. So, so, um, you're right about that. The timing here is also sort of interesting. In 1979, the state legislature passes a bill, General Municipal Law 50K. And 50K basically says a municipality can decide that it won't represent a cop or indemnify a cop, any not, not just a cop, any sort of civil service employee, any city worker, for their on-the-job behavior in the following circumstances. One, when it is determined that they likely were out acting outside the scope of their official duties, or two, if they have violated an internal disciplinary rule. So that gives the law department, the corporation council, some discretion with those parameters on when they're going to withhold defense. That's 1979. In the labor agreement of 1985, so this was the period, I guess that was sort of the 83-84 negotiation, this deal is struck. 
The timing suggests that there was some foresight by the union. This was clearly a union proposal that there were going to be cases where their members might be cut loose per this new state law. And in that event, they negotiated something (laughs) that covers their members for those circumstances, what is now known as this legal defense fund. And the police union's plan, your story says, says this money is available when the city of New York fails or otherwise refuses to provide a legal defense. Can you go through just some of the examples to make this vivid of these the sorts of cases in which that's happening? Sure. And 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 I should say, you know, the, the phrasing that the police union uses in its legal plan is is intentional, right? Because their argument is when our members have their uniform on and they are on the job protecting New Yorkers in ways that can get hairy or get dangerous, what they do on the job is defensible and therefore worthy of defense. So so that's the sort of the key language, right? They will always argue that their members were on the job acting in the color of their job description uh, and thus are entitled to a public defense of their actions. But the specific kinds of cases we're talking about here, and which I cite in the story, I mean, there is a very sort of uh, well-known case for people who are following last summer's Black Lives Matter protests in New York and the police response to them closely would likely have seen or have heard about this incident outside the Barclays Center, I think the day after George Floyd, in which an officer assigned to a Brooklyn precinct can be seen on video uh, shoving a young woman demonstrator in what appears to be totally unprovoked attack uh, with both hands. He sort of lunges into her and sends her flying onto the curb and she bangs her head against the curb. And, uh, you know, the mayor condemned his actions and the commissioner announced an internal investigation and even the DA charged the guy with a misdemeanor assault case. Uh, this is one case caught on video that uh, the city walked away from, right? They, they announced, they didn't announce it, but in court papers, you can see his lawyers filing with the court and saying, we were just told, you know, on such and such state by the law department that they're not going to defend our client. So we're now doing that. This is the law firm for the union. There's some other cases. There's this case uh, in Queens where a 75-year-old man with Parkinson's disease alleges in this lawsuit that, you know, he he uh, got into sort of a verbal back and forth with some officers in an unmarked car over some fairly innocuous traffic dispute and that the officers, you know, f- flipped a UE and followed him and pulled him over and took him out of the car and slammed him onto the hood and roughed him up. Uh, there's an incident in which a, a sick, chronically ill, four foot eight, 85 pound man in Staten Island. Uh, there was some sort of domestic call and the police officers, according to the court papers, barged their way in and threw the guy on the ground and shocked him with the taser, right? I mean, so these are sort of extraordinary acts of alleged brutality and abuse of authority, often captured on video which is sort of key here, where the law department makes a determination pre-litigation fairly early on, and right, the law department has access to all kinds of stuff pre-litigation that defense counsel doesn't, uh, where they say, you know what, it is likely that you were in violation of 50K here, or that per 50K, we can walk away from you, and we're going to do so. So they inform the officer defendant, and that's where the union lawyer steps in, paid for by the city of New York, the taxpayers. And as you're reporting this out, and you mentioned you you talk to a bunch of uh, attorneys who who often sue the NYPD, and they don't even know about this, a bunch of them. So, and and you're surfacing this longstanding arrangement that's largely escape public attention. Uh, what comment are you getting from the PBA, from the NYPD, and from the administration, uh, you know, explaining their view of all this? So unfortunately for all of us and for the public, not much. You know, the the law department uh, deferred to the city and the, the city hall, that is, and the mayor's office acknowledged my requests, and I worked with them on uh, deadline and was hopeful that they would engage with me, and they did not. There was no comment from them. Uh, the PBA uh, didn't, never responded to me. 
the lawyers uh, representing these officers and who have the contract with the PBA never acknowledge my repeated uh, overtures to speak with them and to ask them these questions. There was uh, just zero engagement at all to discuss with me on the merits this this issue. So one more one more related question here, because this really surprised me. Uh, you reached out to some of the, uh, the mayoral candidates about this as well, who are not in office yet or not part of an administration at a moment when there's a lot of appetite for police reform. Like, like what, what sort of response did you get from that? So we didn't we didn't survey the entire field, but um, we made a point to reach out to candidates who have uh, extensive sort of experience with policing, uh, lawsuits, criminal justice. Uh, figuring that they would be in a, a real position to have thought critically about this stuff and to talk about it, you know, substantively. Maya Wiley, so, so former CCBRE, yeah, Maya, Maya Wiley wants the mayor's lawyer and uh, a CCRB chair. Eric Adams, who was a, a captain and sort of a, a vocal critic of the department for years, and Scott Stringer, who runs the controller's office, which approves every you know uh, settlement uh, that the city reaches with cops, and so. Adams's campaign never uh, responded to any questions about this. A spokesman for for Scott Stringer's campaign acknowledged or said, claimed that uh, he wasn't aware of this provision, but that they would study it. And Maya Wiley's campaign said, you know, should she become elected, this is a provision that she would renegotiate if she were mayor negotiating a, a new deal with the Police Benevolent Association and that the money could go toward better, more useful criminal justice reforms. Two things come immediately to mind uh, just off the top of my head, which is one is like a, a union labor issue where, you know, you don't want management, so to speak, in this case, the city kind of dictating, uh, especially with the affiliate fund, right, where they're putting in money for various services that are all supposed to be benefits. You don't necessarily want them dictating what and where it goes or having that precedent in any union. And then the other case is like, so what would police reform activists or, you know, pro-police reform candidates do in that case? Do they cut off the Monday? Do they remove that other $75 per officer? Like, what are their choices keeping in mind appropriate labor practices and things like that? Like, what are the choices for the city in this? So, so you know, we in the story, we outline a point that I think is essential for all of our understanding, which is that once something is in a contract, it is extraordinarily difficult to remove it. It just is. We we quote a former corp counsel, Victor Kovner, saying that's just the reality. It's extremely difficult. The last time it happened in New York, after Abner Wilma, in the resulting negotiations to settle the civil suit in that case, and remember the the PBA famously actually paid out uh, to settle that case in addition to the city. You know there was a a subsequent effort by city negotiators to remove the 48-hour rule and some other disciplinary matters from the contract. And the union uh, resisted and took it to court. And there were years and years of litigation over it. And it wasn't finally resolved until 2006 when the state's highest court ruled that the commissioner of the police department ultimately has the authority and the command to resolve disciplinary matters. And that is not something that is subject to the collective bargaining process. So, so stipulation one, really, really hard. Okay. Um, the rest, I think, is, uh, you know, it's a negotiation. I don't pretend to have been in the room during these things, so I'm not an authority. But I do understand how negotiations go. One side wants something and another side wants something, and, and there's compromise involved. And so you would think that the city might make an offer to the police you know, if they want higher salaries, for example, this is a pool of money now going toward a benefit that is not showing up in the officer's paycheck. So a proposal you could imagine might be made to extend or try to increase officer salary in lieu of a contribution to a defense fund. For I, we're spitballing here. Right, I don't right, know. Right. But yeah. this is how, this is the type of conversation that would have to be had at the negotiating table. And so who the next mayor decides to be, you know, in charge of 
the mayor's office of labor relations and the staff and what the policy goals are. I mean, that all matters. It's in the spirit of thinking about police reform, the public policy implications of these stipulations and these labor agreements. I mean, people should think critically about them with this in mind, because as we're talking about, there is now a reckoning is stuff that was negotiated in 1963 or 1985. Is that just and equitable today in 2021? So I know that in this agreement that there is a carve out for cases that are, quote, adverse to the interests of the city. And does that mean anything in practice? Because it seems like once the corporation council is like, we're not going to defend you, it's clearly adverse, in my view at least, to the interests of the city. And and that doesn't seem to be what this actually means in practice. Listen, I spent more time than I admit to you trying to track down what this means, legally and otherwise. And I got to be honest, I couldn't get anybody to definitively set the record straight, uh, in part because, you know, the city didn't engage with me, which is unfortunate because this is a germane issue. This is key. I'm not a lawyer. My reading was similar to yours. How can it be in the interest of the city to fund the defense of officers that the city has decided are not defensible. I don't know. We've, we quote Zach Carter in the story, making the suggestion that it is not bad public policy to make sure everybody has a vigorous defense. And so to the extent that the city's legal interests overlap with its employees, even one that under 50K hasn't received a, a, city, a law department lawyer, That's an argument, right? I mean, the other argument technically can be that the law department makes its determination that it's not going to defend these guys before they've officially been, you know, found necessarily to have violated a department rule, right? They think that might happen, but it hasn't technically happened yet. You know, in some of these cases, a judge hasn't or a jury hasn't officially awarded damages or made a finding of fact in favor of the plaintiff over the defendant, right? So, Legally, technically, there could be some wiggle room there, and that might be what this is all about. I mean, that's plausible. We put that in the story. It's, uh, But, you know, I didn't find a person who would, on the record, with knowledge of it, sort of walk me through it. And I wish the city had responded because that is – it's important for us to understand. So Zach Carter, right, had worked with Maya Wiley in the de Blasio administration, uh, agents of the city and all that. So it's interesting – me in the story to see Maya saying, as a candidate, this is something I would try to do away with. I would try to bargain out. And uh, Zach explaining why this seems like a reasonable approach from his perspective. But outside of those political weeds, I want to get into some other weeds for for just a second. Sure. So I I wrote a piece for the Daily News this week, uh, very highfalutin abstract terms about police unions and some of the built up power that that they have. And I got a lot of aggressive response from police and people around the police and PBA tweeted about it. And a bunch of those were, well, why aren't you saying anything about the teachers then? Which is interesting. And of course, people who are generally sympathetic to unions are often very suspicious of police unions. And people who are generally sympathetic to police unions often loathe other unions and all that. But the second part of the response I got, and this may have just been the headline, which involved, uh, uh, I think, the phrase fat checks, which is not in the story, is, you know, Hey, hey, screw you, you know, go, go, go to training and walk a beat for six months and then see how you feel. But also, like, you know, regionally, New York police are not paid, New York City police are not paid super well. So they're constantly losing members to Westchester, to Nassau, to Suffolk, to different departments, to the Port Authority, and so on. So the base pay is not all that relevant here. The benefits are, are pretty great. Like, you know, you, you can retire before 50 with uh, full health insurance and, uh, a nice income to start with. But if you look regionally, and and so you're just thinking about the immediate competitive pressures, uh, the NYPD is always losing members. And so the one interesting argument I heard in defense of some of these unique arrangements, which is a phrase I think is, if I'm not butchering it, is used in your your story, is that without these protections, it's just going to be very hard to maintain police in New York. I know that the police unions are always arguing it's us or the apocalypse, but as I've been trying thinking about and trying to connect some of these dots and reading Farrah Stockman's long piece in the New York Times this week, getting into some of the incredible corruption in Suffolk, where the, the police really are just a, uh, a, a salary hustle in effect, 
that then in predictable ways leads to much bigger crimes and, and, and corruption when you have people making $200,000 a year who aren't really accountable to anyone. Like, this is an unfair question to ask a reporter in a long <laughs> setup. But, but what, what leverage do you think a next mayor who comes in who wants to reform some of these things and makes them right has at the bargaining table or elsewhere to get to a better arrangement with a police force and this includes management and, and labor now, right, in the unions who don't want to lose members, who don't want to give up a salary and, like, really want these protections and have some at least half credible threat of otherwise in groups we can we can, we can walk away and we can shift what we're doing. Yeah. Look, I mean, you know, I, first of all, the, the contract ex- that the, 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 the police are, are working on an expired contract right now, right? And the union has opted for arbitration and – but that just means the last contract still holds. Correct. And there's a whole Taylor Law thing, right? Because they, they have a union. They're not the military. That's right. They're not the military. They have a union, and it's thus it's illegal for them to strike. That, that's the pretend setup. That's right. And so this next – so the current <laughs> – without getting too deep into the minutia of it, but the, you know, the 17 to 19 extension will happen by arbitration, presumably. Uh, and then there will be an opportunity for the next – mayor to decide what to say in at the negotiating table as as we've talked about here there's sort of a lot in there I'm, i don't know which part you want me to take on specifically but it is no doubt if you read these if you if you go back and you read the history of the labor negotiations in the clips and in the chief and in the records that are produced by the various entities that hear these things, PERB or the New York City Office of Collective Bargaining, the argument is made historically almost every time by the union that they make less than officers in NASA or in Westchester or Suffolk. Uh, now they've shifted their comparison to state police operating increasingly in New York or the Port Authority cops. That's going to be its own episode in this pod, by the way, the invasion of Cuomo's cops into New York City. Yeah. That's some interesting no, no, stuff. It's interesting. I mean, I don't I don't actually think the data bear out that there is a mass exodus of members to, uh, you know, the NYPD doesn't have a recruitment problem right now. I think there are concerns that are legitimate that the union has, but I'm not entirely convinced that that's a, an argument that's got a solid basis in in fact, well, I'm not saying it's not a concern that has its own legitimacy, but I'm just anyway. <laughs> so so I don't know what to tell you. I mean, look, the, the union is a formidable uh, political entity. It, it is not as strong as it once was. A lot of its members don't live in the city. Right. So they are not voters in New York. They have the ability to make campaign contributions, which they do. But there are entities even among municipal labor organizations or labor groups that are sort of more prolific donors, they certainly practice, as other unions do, what has been sort of described to me as asymmetric lobbying. And lobbying, not in the traditional sense, but, you know, there's what happens at the negotiation negotiating table. There's also what happens in arbitration, what happens before the state. There's uh, in both in Albany and legislatures and also at the... Um, I'm just blanking on the name here for, for, for labor, NYPERBs or whatever. Um, that is all to say that, you know, commissioners come and go, the cops stay and the union will represent them in time immemorial, right? They will be here forever. And so there are many ways for them to flex and also different constituencies that they can appeal to, to get what they want. Uh, it's complicated. It is not just done at one table at one time. It is gradual and um, it will take somebody who is savvy and also strong-willed to say yes to this, but, or no to that, and, and it's a seduction, but it is also brute force. And, you know, I I don't know if there's a current candidate who can do that, but that's what it's going to take. So it's funny that you mentioned the residency requirement. I don't know if a lot of activists really consider that a residence requirement would bring back like a stronger voting block in um, the NYPD. But, you know, that's uh, another question for a different time if that residency requirement ever happens. So what I think about a lot is like the difference between the original protest that 
you know, coined the phrase Black Lives Matter in the street. That was uh, uh, Eric Garner. And de Blasio being a lot more vocally critical of the NYPD at that time. We're talking 2014. During that time, you have the entire like NYPD show of disrespect where they turned their backs on him. And then fast forward to now, you have de Blasio, you know, kind of less and less critical of the NYPD and all the hubbub around Daniel Pantaleo, who killed Eric Garner. Like, how was he defended? And in what ways has that affected, like, the mass call for change now? And in the future, even, like, where does that... Where does that sure. go from Eric Garner to George Floyd reforms to then what is well, possible the, beyond? Yeah. No, I, I I think I you know it sounds like you're you're uh, sort of zeroing in on the the adage you know you uh, campaign in poetry and then you govern in prose and uh, there's no doubt that Bill De Blasio championed at least in the early years and during this campaign this idea of a more equitable. Uh, society and uh, more accountability and policing. Remember, he used his his son uh, in campaign ads and talked vocally about having conversations with his son who's, you know, biracial about policing uh, in New York and discrimination and so on and so forth. And then fairly quickly into his administration was met with some pretty extraordinary external pressures, including the death of Eric Garner and then the assassination of two officers in Brooklyn, Wenjin Liu and Rafael Ramos. And Cops, as you mentioned, turning their back on him at their funerals. It was it was a pretty extraordinary time. And then also, you'll remember, a, a slowdown in work by the officers after that for weeks and weeks, a, a demonstration of the power and effect of force that officers can have, not just when they do their job, but when they don't do their job. And I think we note in the story, and it's demonstrably true, that in the years since, the mayor has been, by and large, uh, pretty accepting of the police department and his practices. And he has pushed some reform agendas, including, you know, some body camera stuff and a focus on training and all that. Um, but what the story is about and this issue that we're trying to bring some attention to that is really talked about is not just what is said publicly or what is focused about with respect to training or body cameras or some of these themes that I think dominate the conversation at this point. The story is trying to get at these long entrenched, opaque, little known agreements buried in documents that actually govern the rules of engagement for officers when they go to work as represented union members. And to the extent that they are things that can be renegotiated or can be rethought with public interest in mind, right, with the broader public policy implications in mind, uh, what a new administration might could do about it. And it's tricky and it's complicated, but uh, if you don't know about them, you can't ask critical questions of them. And um, we'll see to what extent uh, this next batch of elected officials and certainly the next mayor wants to take on what I think we refer to in the story as a, a sacred cow. So, you know, to be to be seen, I suppose. Stay tuned. <laughs> I tried to avoid using that particular catchphrase, but yeah. Jake, that, that's really interesting. I can't wait to see what uh, additional reporting you may have here and on the NYPD more generally. And thank you so much for coming on and taking the time and going through this. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Journalists and Artists. Find us at thebrick.house. Special thank you to our guests this week, Farah Stockman of the New York Times and Jake Pearson of ProPublica. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU, but we recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. Everyone, stay safe, wear a mask, don't get too free and easy just when we're getting to the end here. No matter what Cuomo sang about a spring of renewal and rejuvenation. And we'll see you next week. Bye.
That's good enough. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and Harry, uh, let's let's lose the gum. <laughs> <laughs> Back to school. All right, I'm gonna roll. 